You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. It's been a couple of weeks since we were in John due to our application Sunday service and then Easter last Sunday. Um, We had wrapped up uh, John chapter 1, 2, and 3 with Jesus's ministry starting out, uh, him, him calling his initial disciples to him. Uh, we looked extensively at the discussion that he has with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, uh, an individual who, very moral, very upstanding, um, but somebody who needed, needed to be reborn, needed to experience the new birth. And so Jesus communicates that, that need to Nicodemus, despite all the things that he had been able to accomplish in his religious life, um, he was still not good enough to be saved. Um, and then uh, we see John the Baptist and his ministry starting to decrease there at the end of John chapter 3 with some of his disciples being jealous over the um, the crowds that are flocking to Jesus. And, and they're kind of looking around saying, what about us? Why are we not seeing the same type of um, crowds and the t- same type of baptisms maybe that we were even a few weeks ago. And so John the Baptist's disciples are confused as to what is taking place. And so that leads us into John chapter 4, where we see Jesus uh, interacting with the woman of Samaria at the well. And so we're going to see some of the events that even lead to Jesus encountering her. Our summary sentence for today We have a responsibility to prioritize our life, where we live, our location, our activities, our interactions. We have a responsibility to prioritize our life around the gospel because people all around us have the same basic needs that can only find fulfillment in Christ. We have a responsibility to prioritize our life, our location, our activities, our interactions, We prioritize our life around the gospel because people all around us have the same basic needs that can only find fulfillment in Christ. For our kids, we need to understand that people around us need Jesus. As you're writing that down, we're going to see today in our our reading and our teaching that um, Jesus encounters this woman from Samaria, and she's a part of a culture that is genuinely, generally, rejected by the the Jewish people. Um, These people from this area of Samaria are the uh, offspring of those from the Old Testament when the kingdom was split after uh, David and after Solomon's reign. We see the the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Uh, The northern kingdom is the group that is uh, taken off into captivity with the Assyrian Empire, And then a couple hundred years later, you have the Babylonian captivity for the southern kingdom. And the big difference between these two captivities is that the northern kingdom falls prey to intermarriage with the Assyrian people. And so they kind of break tradition of only marrying within the Jewish culture, and they begin to intermarry with other peoples from other cultures. The southern kingdom typically stays true to form and is only marrying within that culture. And so eventually, when everybody's kind of released from captivity and brought back into the, the, the Jewish area, the, the promised land, there's distinct differences now between them. You've got the group that kind of stayed pure in their relationships, pure within their marriages, and the group that did not. And the group that did not is rejected by the group that did. And so they begin to be uh, treated differently because of their compromise. 
And so it leads to two different cultures, the Jewish culture and the Sumerian culture. Uh, the Sumerian culture would still say that they are worshipers of the Old Testament God. Uh, particularly, they were worshiping off the first five books of the Old Testament, not necessarily the rest of the books. Um, they are not permitted to really worship in uh, the, the Jewish temple, and so they kind of have their own place of worship, and you see that come up in the discussion. Where is it Where is it right or where is it okay to worship God? Do we have to worship at the Jewish temple, or can we worship where we've been worshiping? Um, so there's these two cultures that are basically created as a result of decisions about marriage. In fact, there was a popular prayer at that time by the Jewish people, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. So this hatred ran deep for the Jewish people towards the Samarians. Um, when we look at the comparison between Nicodemus and this Samaritan woman, we see some distinct differences. One, their genders drastically different, right? We've got a, a male and a female. We also have an extremely moral individual in Nicodemus and an uh, extremely immoral individual in the Samaritan woman. And then obviously we see the differences in their cultures, a, Jew, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. These conversations follow each other, and they're a reminder to us that every race, every spiritual background, and every moral condition needs Jesus, right? Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman both end with the need for these two individuals to express faith in him. But Nicodemus is not in any better situation because he's Jewish or because he's moral and has kept the law better than this woman who has multiple husbands and is currently living with a man who's not her husband. They both need Jesus, and it's a strong reminder to us of that as we see these two conversations. And so we're going to look at the second conversation today, the one between the woman of Samaria here in John chapter 4. And so I want to read through chapter 1 through 42 as we go, and so we're not going to read it all in one big chunk, but we are going to cover every single verse this morning as we see this story unfold, this narrative unfold. And what I want us to do is to pull out some application principles, as we've been doing, uh, from each section of this narrative. And so we won't spend a ton of time on each one of these because there's 12 of them today. But I do want us to see some important things that I, help, I think can help uh, shape our life and, and help shape our thinking. So we see John chapter 4, verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. All right, so this is bridging the gap between chapter 3 and chapter 4. What's been happening? We, well, we know that Jesus is starting to gain this strong following, right? The Pharisees are starting to take notice. It's why Nicodemus came in the night to talk to Jesus to kind of figure out what is it that you're actually teaching? Who is it that you actually are? We know that you're from God. Nobody could say these things and do these things unless they were from God, but we want more information, right? And then we saw the piece about John and his disciples and the tension that was starting to be created there about, okay, what are we supposed to, what are we supposed to think and how are we supposed to react to the fact that Jesus' following is starting to become greater than our following? And Jesus seems to be aware of this tension as well between the Pharisees and between John and his disciples. And so it says, when Jesus learned these things, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Two things jump out to me right here that I think is worth mentioning for us. Number one, being right isn't always a reason to fight. Being right 
isn't always a reason to fight. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, Jesus willfully distanced himself from this controversy, even though the others were wrong about it. Right? Think about it. The, the Pharisees are wrong for growing concerned about Jesus, right? There should be no animosity towards Jesus. This is the Messiah they've been waiting for, right? But they're starting to, to develop some, some hatred and some tension and some uh, lack of trust about Jesus. And then you've got the good guys, John and his disciples, who, who are very much doing the work of God, but there's some tension that's starting to be created there, right? That, that they're uh, maybe not as effective as they had been, at least from the disciples' standpoint, because they're starting to worry more about what Jesus is doing than what they're doing. And I think Jesus sees both of these things going on and says, okay, we're going to take a step back and we're going to go to a different area. Right, And so it's a reminder to me, sometimes that we find ourselves in the midst of controversy. Sometimes we find ourselves in the midst of controversy where we are absolutely in the right. And sometimes it's appropriate not to fight because you're in the right. Sometimes it's right to step back and distance yourself from that controversy. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. And by moving... Jesus creates new opportunities for himself while allowing John to continue with his. Notice Jesus never approaches John and tells him to stop doing what he's doing. That there is still a role for John the Baptist to play at this point. Now that role is decreasing as he is paving the way for the Messiah. It's becoming less and less of a need. But Jesus doesn't step in and tell John and his disciples to be quiet and quit worrying about things. In fact, go ahead and go into retirement because your ministry's done. He doesn't do that. Instead, he just steps away and says, I'm going to give you guys some space so that you can flourish and you can do your thing, and we're going to continue doing ours. We're just going to move to a different area, right? Similar to how you feel like about uh, Abraham and Lot, maybe, where, where Abraham and Lot, they, they recognize the tension, and Abraham says, you know what? I'm going to step away. I'm going to reduce some of this controversy, reduce some of this tension. Jesus does that. He left Judea, and he departs again for Galilee, Being right isn't always a reason to fight. Jesus demonstrates that for us here. But number two, don't assume that success means God's will. Jesus leaves a thriving ministry, which lets me know that a thriving ministry isn't always a reason to stay put. Right? So Jesus is having... uh, followers and crowds that are coming to him. It says they're baptizing people regularly. Like they, are, they are a growing ministry. And Jesus says, you know what, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna relocate. That's, that's, not, that's not the popular move, right? I remember several years ago when Francis Chan was leading his church in California. They're booming. They've got multiple campuses. Their church is growing. His sphere of influence is growing he stepped down from his church, and, and, and it confused a lot of people. Why would you do this? Uh, why would you leave a thriving ministry? How in the world could it be God's will for you to leave this ministry? In fact, I remember an interview that he sat down to do uh, with a couple of other pastors, and the topic was supposed to be one thing, and in the middle of the interview, they hijacked the topic, and they basically turned it on him and said, we're actually not going to talk about this. We really want to know what in the world are you doing? How in the world could this be God's will for you to step away from a ministry that's thriving? How could that be God's will? And so he's kind of trying to explain how this makes sense in his heart, how this, how this makes sense based on the Holy Spirit's leading in his life. And, and these two pastors never really came around to, 
to really support him or, or understand what he was talking about. But when I read this passage here, I see some similarities that Jesus had this booming ministry. People are coming to him to be baptized and he willfully steps away from it to go to a different area. A thriving ministry isn't always a reason to stay put. Secondly, sometimes less influence can lead to more influence. Jesus leaves big crowds and he plops down at a well and one person shows up to have a conversation with him versus a massive crowd that he can teach. Right? So he goes from teaching big crowds to teaching a woman here in just a few minutes. But if you fast forward a little bit into Acts chapter 8, sometimes less influence can lead to more influence. In Acts chapter 8, verse 5 through 25, some of Jesus' disciples, as they're being dispersed after Pentecost and they're going to take the gospel, they go to Samaria and a whole bunch of people get saved through their ministry there. Step back and think, where did Jesus start in our ministry that we've been talking about? Well, he went to the temple, and he cleansed the temple, right? So he started in Jerusalem, and where did he just leave? He just left Judea, and where is he headed to? Samaria. That's the Great Commission, right? Like when Jesus calls his disciples to be great commission-minded individuals, he tells them to go where? You're going to be my disciples in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So for Jesus, it wasn't about how many disciples can I get in Jerusalem, and then it didn't become how many disciples can I get in Judea, and it doesn't even become how many disciples can I get in Samaria. It's really how many disciples can I get in the, in the, in the, in the world, right? Because Jesus says, I want people from every tribe, nation, and tongue represented in heaven worshiping me. So Jesus is more about the amount of disciples in the amount of areas than he is in a particular area. He's moving from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, and he's setting a great example for his disciples so that when he follows up and says, here's my instructions to you, they know, hey, we've been doing that for the last three years. Like we, we, we've, been, we've been pointed in that direction for the last three years. Don't assume that success means God's will necessarily. It would not have been God's will for Jesus to remain in this area. He left Judea. He departed again for Galilee. And then number four, or verse four, he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Number three for us this morning is recognize daily events as God's sovereign plan. Recognize daily events as God's sovereign plan. For our kids, God has special plans for us every day. What do I mean by that? Well, look what the text says. It says he had to pass through Samaria. And we're not told why he had to. Just told that he had to. Why is that significant? Because normally you would never go through Samaria if you didn't have to. If you were a Jewish individual traveling, you would always go out of your way to bypass this area so that you did not have to come in contact with these people that you disliked so much. So Jesus says, hey, we're setting out for this journey Here's where our end destination is, and we're going to go through Samaria. 
the disciples would have been pretty confused by that. And we don't know if that was initiated by Jesus or if there were some type of circumstances that led to it or if it's simply from God's perspective, he had to pass through Samaria based off the conversation that needed to happen with this woman. Whatever the circumstances were, God ordained this conversation to happen with this woman. Jesus had to pass through Samaria. We don't know why he had to, but we do know why he had to because he had to have this conversation with this woman. This is somebody that God wanted. This is somebody that God wanted to be a part of his family. And so God ensures the details to make sure that the gospel comes to her. God's providence leads Jesus to this area and to this encounter. We said this is not the normal path to take. It's also not the normal time to meet people at the well. This is the sixth hour, and according to the Jewish clock, this would be about noon, about middle of the day, which is not the time people were typically coming to pull water from the well. It was the hot part of the day. And so they would have to come and fill their jugs up and take them back home. You would typically want to do that in the cooler parts of the day. So for Jesus to even encounter somebody at this point takes some providence by God. It takes a really awful woman who needs to avoid social contact to come and talk to him at this point. She comes in the middle of the day. Why? Because her life's a wreck. Her reputation's a wreck, right? And so she comes in hopes of avoiding all the chit-chat and conversation that would normally happen with people at the well drawing water for their families. That's not by accident. That's not by accident. God says, I want this individual. And so we're going to have to go through Samaria. And we're going to get there at the right time when this woman is coming to draw water from the well. What does that mean for us? There's a lot of times where our day does not go the way that we set out for it to. There's, there's so many times in my day where if you'd have asked me, what do you have on your agenda for today? And then asked me at the end of the day, what, what happened today? They don't look the same. They do not look the same. I don't, I'll give you an example. I don't know, I don't know uh, how long my promotion was being discussed. I don't know if there was a set time for when it was supposed to happen. I just know we got done with a staff meeting one day, and I approached my headmaster and said, hey, um, I just got a quick question for you. I thought it was a quick question for him, right? And so I asked it, and he said, why don't we, why don't we talk about that over lunch? What, what, do you have lunch plans today? And in my mind, I'm thinking, I got a really busy day today. Like, I'm not even sure if I was going to eat lunch. And I was like, no, I don't, I don't have anything. He's like, great. I'm driving to Atlanta to have lunch with our, our, our head of our school board. He said, I'd love for you to come along. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, like, that's a, that's a three-hour tour right there, right? Like, like, I am going to lose three hours of my day to go have lunch for what I think is a simple question, right? And so I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to do that, right? So, um, so I go, and I scramble and get my stuff together, tell everybody I'm about to leave. And so um, we get in the car, and we're just riding. And he just starts talking about his vision and desires for the school, and he kind of throws it out there, and he says, hey, you know, we hadn't had a chance to talk, and, and what do you think about this? And so we begin to talk about this new scenario. And I'm thinking, I wonder if this conversation would have happened today, tomorrow, next week, if I hadn't have come and asked this question and kind of sparked this opportunity for us to talk. And so I'm sitting there thinking, 
man, this is totally God because I had no intentions of going on this lunch tour. I had no intentions of really sitting down and talking with my headmaster. And I'm not sure if he had intentions of talking with me that day. Like, I don't think it was really on his radar. It just kind of happened. Our paths crossed and my day was changed. And really, my future has been changed, right? Like, like the things that I'm working on, the things that I'm planning, those things that I'm taking care of now have all been radically shaped by that day and that conversation. This type of stuff happens all the time for us. We think something is going to happen in a day and things radically change. And it's really important for us to recognize that these things aren't by accident, these things aren't by chance, and these things aren't random, that God orders our days. And he redirects us as needed so that we encounter people and we have interactions that he desires for us to have. And that's exactly what happens in this case. Jesus goes from big crowds to sitting at a well in the middle of the day when typically people do not show up there and a woman arrives and presents an opportunity for a conversation. Not the normal path to take to his long-term destination. You don't typically go through Samaria and you don't typically meet people at the well at this time of day. And all of this gets, gets orchestrated for this time for Jesus to have this conversation. Number four, don't miss ministry opportunities when you're tired. It says, Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. In verse seven, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Thankfully, it was the son of God that was sitting there for her. Because if it was me and God had ordained and directed my path to be in Samaria at a well at noontime in the heat of the sun, and I had just had these great, these great conferences that I had been leading, and I had just seen a bunch of people baptized as a result of my teaching, I might would have cracked my eyes, seen her, and said, I don't need to talk to her. Like, like I've been doing a lot the last several days, the last several weeks. Like, like I've seen a lot of people get saved. I've been teaching a ton. I'm on, I'm on break, right? Like, like it's rest time for me. Like, and, and I don't know that anybody could have criticized me for that. Like, I don't know that you could have really said, how in the world did you not talk to that woman? It's like, dude, you need, you need a break. Like, you've been really busy. Your schedule's been crazy. Like, you deserve some time off. And Jesus doesn't do that here. I mean, Jesus realizes this is unusual for a woman to be here at this well at this time. And he, and he sparks up conversation with her. <coughs> he requests a drink from her. He says, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Don't miss ministry opportunities when you're tired. We see Jesus' humanity clearly coming through in the text here because of his exhaustion, right? And so we've talked about how important it is from the book of Hebrews that Jesus be a real man. He's not posing as a man. He's not pretending to be a man. He is a man. He is God in human form, and he subjects himself to tiredness here. And we see him tired here. But we also see his deity coming through here because he remains extremely compassionate in his humanity. He's human, he gets tired, but unlike fallen humankind who would have probably relaxed in their tiredness, man, his compassion comes through in his tiredness here. 
and he takes advantage of this ministry opportunity. Even when he's tired, he didn't take time off. He saw an opportunity, and he took it. Number five, be intentional to push back against prejudice and discrimination. Jesus is not the one who draws attention to the fact that they are different. She does. And it's not that she's offended. She's not taking the higher ground here and saying, how dare you, a Jew, try to talk to me, a Samaritan? It's the opposite. She's basically saying, why would you, a Jew, talk to me who's a Samaritan? Y'all don't, y'all don't like us. Right, like, like we're we're kind of the the objects of your abuse, and she's like, I can't, I can't, I don't know why you would talk to us. I want you to, I want you to note here that Jesus intentionally communicates value towards women and the Samaritan culture. Now the disciples aren't here right now, right? But if you fast forward down here. Verse 27, then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? But it's exactly what they were thinking. It's like, why are you talking to a Samaritan woman? Like, we don't have any dealings here. Like, this isn't, this isn't our ministry. This isn't who we're supposed to be talking to. Like, what are you doing? Jesus pushes back, not because he has any prejudice or discrimination against uh, this woman, but because his disciples will. His disciples are from that that mindset. And so he's pushing back to help teach them so that Acts chapter 8 can happen, so that his disciples will go and minister to these people when he's up in heaven. It's a great learning lesson for them, and they do learn it as we see in Acts chapter 8. Jesus doesn't care that she's a woman, and at this time it was not socially acceptable to talk to a woman like this in public. Jesus doesn't care that she's a Samaritan. And Jesus doesn't care that she's a gross sinner. Again, we said that she's coming in the middle of the day to avoid ridicule. Because she has a a really sketchy past. She's not a sinner like we think of everybody being a sinner. She's a sinner. Like she's the type that you can jump on and judge if you want to. And feel totally justified in it. And Jesus doesn't do that to her. Jesus doesn't care that she's a woman or a Samaritan or that she's a gross sinner. Instead, he pushes back against all of those type of social prejudices and uses it as a teaching tool for his disciples. When it says here that Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, it really means they won't even eat out of the same utensils as, as, as a Samaritan, which means for him to even say, give me a drink, she's saying, even if I wanted to, I can't because you won't even drink out of my, my bucket here. Like, like that's, that's against y'all's policies even. Like, you hate us that much, you don't even want to touch the things that we touch kind of thing. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Number six, we need to find fulfillment in Christ alone. Jesus taps into her deepest longings and desires here. And every man, every woman, has similar deep longings for satisfaction. I had you discussing in groups this morning, what are some of our needs as a human being that we share with each other that we try to fulfill? I think all of us have a desire for acceptance like we all want to feel valued, we all want to feel loved. I think we all have a desire for purpose. Right? Like we want to know that we matter, that our life matters, that the things that we do matter. We all have a desire for fulfillment. That that we are fulfilled by these things. The, the these these people that or these these social opportunities. We want to find fulfillment. And 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 mankind seeks to fulfill these things in a variety of ways. Like we find it, we try to find it through relationships with human beings. We try to find it through our occupations, our jobs, our activities. We're constantly trying to satisfy these deep longings in our soul through earthly opportunities. And she is an example of somebody who is trying to do that, right? Her life is a string of unfulfilling relationships. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband, for you have five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Right? She, she recognizes, you shouldn't know that about me. Like, you're not from this area, and yet you know some, some real deep, dark secrets about me, things that are more public in this area because of the fact that a lot of people know this reputation because I've been with a lot of guys. And she is desperately trying to find some type of answer for her deep longings through human relationships, and it's not fulfilling her. It's not satisfying her. The natural waters of this life can never quench our deep spiritual longings. It satisfies us briefly, but the, the thirst comes again. I mean, it's, it's why stats will say, tell you that, that people who have been divorced typically find themselves in divorce again unless something radically changes in their approach to marriage because typically they're jumping from one marriage to another in hopes of finding fulfillment from the individual that they didn't find from their previous one. And unless they get things right with Christ and find fulfillment in Christ in that next marriage, they're going to find a lack of fulfillment once again and will jump ship again to another relationship. That's what's happened with her. She's jumping relationships, trying to find fulfillment, and she cannot. That's why some people jump job to job, because they are looking for purpose and value and fulfillment, and they can't find it, and so they keep looking for it. And Jesus is trying to stop this for her. He's offering her something that the world can't. He's offering her the acceptance and the fulfillment and the purpose that she longs for through him. He says, I can give you water that springs up to eternal life. I can give you water where you'll never be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of this water will be satisfied. So he's got this promise that he's extending to her. I can satisfy you completely and permanently. This idea of 
of water and salvation finds its roots in the Old Testament in Psalm chapter 39, or for, for, sorry, Psalm 36, verse 9. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. In Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before my God? In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's, a, that's a great picture of what it looks like to try to find fulfillment through the things of this world versus through Christ. Trying to, trying to flood your mouth with water with a broken jug where the water's kind of flowing out the back and you can't really, you can't really get what you need. And God says, this is what's happened for my people when they've, when they've left me for other gods for other things. I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. If we find in ourselves desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is we were made for another world. And that's, that's certainly the case with, with our brokenness and our sinfulness is that we have taken creation. This is Romans 1. This is basics of Romans 1, right? We have taken creation, good gifts, things that we were meant to enjoy in an act of worship towards God, we've taken those things and made them our gods, right? So we've made our physical human relationships godlike for us, our spouses and our kids. We seek to find acceptance, value, fulfillment in people rather than our creator. And people let us down. And we try to find value and acceptance and purpose in our jobs, and they let us down. And the only way we can be fulfilled, Jesus tells her, is through him. We need to find our fulfillment in Christ alone. That's his message for this woman who is desperately seeking these things and trying to fill them any way that she can. He addresses her sin matter here, which leads me to number seven. Understand that sexual sin matters to God. If I'm reading through this and and I come to this point, my first reaction is, oh, you just blew it right there, Jesus. I mean, you just lost her, <laughs> right? Like, like she's warming up to you. You're, you're starting to make a connection with her. She's responsive. And now you're going to call out her sin? Like, like she's going she to be completely turned off to you right here. Like, like this is the worst move you could make in this conversation to call her out for her sin. And yet it's a masterful work by Jesus in that, He's not dismissing her sin problem, but he's also not dismissing her for her sin problem. Right? Like, like he's, he's, he's letting her know, hey, rewind to the beginning of this conversation. I already knew that you had all these previous husbands and that you're not living with your current husband. And I engaged in this conversation with you knowing all of that. So one, I think she finds a, a level of security and safety here in that, okay, You've been having this conversation with me and you already had this knowledge. But he's also communicating to her what you're doing, how you're trying to fulfill yourself 
is not okay. There's a sin problem here that has to be addressed. He doesn't dismiss her for her sin problem, and he doesn't avoid her sin problem. Sin must be addressed for conversion to really occur here. And so he does bring this out into the light. He does expose her sin so that she can see hey, you, you should not walk away from what I'm talking about here and go back to your previous life because your previous life's not working. It's not working. Everything that you're trying to do has failed you and he's able to bring that to light here. And we certainly live in a culture today where, where sexual sins are starting to be dismissed and accepted and tolerated. And this is a great reminder to us that Jesus does not view sexual sins that way, that they matter to him and they need to be addressed from his perspective. And he brings that to her attention here. Now, she kind of changes the topic of conversation here for maybe two reasons. One, she may not want to talk about this issue. Or two, she may be starting to experience conviction here and wants to know, what am I supposed to do with this conviction? Because I don't even know how to worship and how to confess and how to repent because my mind doesn't know where that's even appropriate. Because I feel like we're supposed to be doing that in Jerusalem and we're kind of cut off because of our ancestors and what they did. And so we're worshiping over here, but we're told constantly that this isn't good enough. So she shifts the conversation here. Sir, I believe that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And she uses that, that pronoun you talking about the Jewish people. So she's grouping him in with those people. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Number eight, we need to seek to worship God how he wants. For our kids, we need to know God to worship God. Jesus gives clear instructions here about how God accepts worship from his people. He accepts it in spirit and in truth. First there, God must be worshiped in spirit. What Jesus does here is he tears down any, any understanding mindset that God is concerned about the outward more than he's concerned about the inward. Right? He says, look, the, the location, the where part, it's really starting to decrease. Like, like that's not important. He says the, the outward piece, this outward worship, that's not what he's looking for. God's looking for the inward change, that new birth worship that he described to Nicodemus. Not concerned about the where or the outward, but concerned about the inward. Secondly, God must be worshiped in truth. We have to worship him as he has revealed himself. That means our thoughts about God are really important. What we think about God has to be accurate. And Jesus addresses her about this. He says, you worship in kind of a state of ignorance. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he's calling her out and addressing her for the fact that their people only worship based off the first five books of the Old Testament, and new revelation has come that they are not accepting. So he's critiquing the fact that you're worshiping, but you don't have full knowledge like you should, like a lot of the Jewish people do. It's a reminder to us that we can come here on Sunday morning, and we can worship, and we can sing, and we can call ourselves believers and Christians, 
but we are missing the mark if we are worshiping a God that is not the God that's revealed in God's word. We can very easily create false gods. We can easily manipulate God to be the type of God that we want him to be, a God who is tolerant of our sin. We can, we can, we can manipulate his attributes to fit into the box that we like. And God says, I am looking for people to worship me in truth, to not worship me the way that they want me to be, but to worship me the way that I have revealed myself to be. A.W. Tozer says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Our worship suffers, and certainly our moral decline occurs when our concept of God is blurred. Man, one of the attributes that is abused most right now about God in our culture is his love. Right? People want to take the fact that God can't be a loving God and not also want me to be happy. Like, how could God be loving and not want me to be happy? I remember my dad looking me in my eyes and telling me that he believed that God loved him and wanted him to be happy. Therefore, there was no way that God wanted him to stay with my mom because that did not make him happy. He said, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. God wants me to be with this other woman because that woman makes me happy. And I believe that God is loving and there's no way that he would want me to be unhappy. That's not the God that has revealed himself in his word. That is not the God that has revealed himself in his word. God has not revealed himself in such a way where he says, your happiness is more important than my holiness. He's never said that in his word. God says, I want you to worship me in truth the way that I have revealed myself. He communicates this to her. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What's her reaction? Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Number nine, share what you are learning with others. I mean, she is captivated by the things that Jesus is telling her. The response to this statement that he is the Messiah indicates to us that she believes that statement because she now goes and tries to collect other people to come hear it themselves. She is a great example of what it looks like to be filled with the living waters of God because what happens is we start to spill out into others. When we're being properly filled by God, we ought to spill over into the lives of others. And she goes and wants to bring these people to Jesus. And they come They went out of the town and were coming to him. You fast forward to verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. And what was her testimony? That he told me all that I ever did. It reminds us that God uses the testimony of others to initiate belief in others. We are introducing people to their own unique experiences with Christ. Man, don't don't downplay your testimony. Don't downplay what God has done in your life and don't downplay the importance of you sharing it with other people because she takes what God is doing in her heart, shares it with other people and they believe this message and they come to follow Jesus. Share what you're learning with others. 
this right here reminds us how important it is for us to do that. Number 10, don't miss ministry opportunities when you're busy. We said earlier, don't miss those opportunities when you're tired. Here, don't miss your opportunities to minister when you're busy. What were the disciples doing? Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. I put in my notes, make sure that you're primarily busy and kind of thinking back to what Jesus was tired, make sure you're busy and tired for the right things. 1 Thessalonians 2.9 is a passage where Paul talks to the Thessalonian people and he says, we have worked hard at our jobs to give us opportunities to minister to you. He says, I'm tired, not just from my job. I am tired because I am laboring hard for your spiritual growth. What are the disciples doing? Man, they're busy running around trying to take care of the physical needs of Jesus, right? They're going to collect food. They want to make sure that Jesus has something to eat. <clears throat> These are good things. They're busy with, with good things, right? But I want you to make this connection. I want you to make this connection as we, as we get ready to wrap up. The disciples went into the same town that she went into. The disciples have had a very similar experience that she has had with Jesus, right? Think about it. We got people like Nathaniel and Andrew and others who have come to Jesus, and Jesus has told them things about them too, right? Jesus tells Nathaniel, hey, I know about you. You were sitting under that tree before you came over here. They've had a very similar experience as this woman did. They go into the same town. They come back with physical food. Hey, Jesus, we're back from town. We've got food for you to eat lunch. She comes back from town and says, I've got souls here for you, Jesus. People that want to know you. Now, does that mean that we don't, we don't ever go out and get lunch? No. Could they have potentially accomplished both? Yeah, I think so. I think they could have gone into town, and as they're buying food to bring back to Jesus, they could have informed these people, hey, you guys aren't going to believe who my lunch, my lunch date is with today. It's with the Messiah. Like, call me crazy, but I'm about to go eat lunch with the Messiah, so I'm here to pick up some sandwiches, and hey, there's plenty of room for you to come eat with us as well. He's told us everything that we've ever done, He's fulfilled everything that we've been longing for, all these promises. You ought to come eat lunch with us as well. We got to eat. We got to stay alive. But why not eat with the Messiah today? They don't do that. They go in and get the food and bring it back. She goes into the same town and brings a whole bunch of people back that want to know the Messiah. And I'm thinking, I got to think that if I'm a disciple, I'm thinking, hey, there's the guy that I bought my sandwiches from. Why didn't I think to invite him over here? We need to consider when our physical needs and desires can be set aside for spiritual needs. 
Don't miss ministry opportunities when you're busy. Don't lose sight of the fact that God is allowing you to cross paths with people that may need to know Jesus. Don't be so busy with the physical things that you miss the spiritual needs around you. Number 11, rejoice over times of sowing and reaping. Rejoice over times of sowing and reaping. Jesus goes into this this, this discussion about sowing and reaping. And it can be kind of confusing, uh, some of the things that he's saying here. Essentially what he's talking about, though, is that the normal process for sowing and reaping is that you would have to plant stuff and then wait at least four months to really reap stuff. And what Jesus is saying is that, hey, that whole sowing and reaping thing, it's almost like on top of each other now. Like, you don't have to wait four months necessarily for you to sow and to see the spiritual reaping aspect. He's like, look, I just had a quick conversation with this woman by the well, and I imagine that he's talking about the fields are white to harvest as he sees this crowd coming to this lunch date, right? Like, I imagine him not just sitting with his disciples, but maybe sitting with his disciples and saying, look, guys, the field is, is, is white with harvest. Look at these people that are coming to hear the message, the good news. You guys are about to reap. Because, right, Jesus' disciples are the ones doing the baptizing, right? Like, we, we saw that at the beginning of the passage. He says, you're about to reap, and you really haven't even had to sow. And so he's giving them this lesson about sowing and reaping, that sowing is always a necessary part of reaping, right? If Jesus didn't have the conversation, these people wouldn't be coming. But reaping can happen for anyone at any time. And it's a reminder to us that sometimes we play the part of the sowing, and we may not be able to reap right then. We may, we may talk to the, the person that we're buying our, our sandwich from at the, at the restaurant for lunch, and we may take an opportunity to share the gospel or to at least communicate our love for Jesus to them, and there may not be anything that comes from it. And there may be somebody else that walks in right behind us and initiates a conversation, and boom, something happens because we started the process through the sowing. Jesus is trying to cue his disciples into bigger things than just the physical needs. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Number 12, let your faith in Christ deepen as you learn more. Hopefully you're seeing this is a theme that we've been talking about all through John. Are we supposed to believe in Jesus? Absolutely. And we are supposed to keep believing in Jesus. As Jesus reveals himself more and more, it ought to deepen our trust in him. And that's what they say. They're like, look, I started believing in Jesus because of what you told me about Jesus. And now I believe in Jesus even more because of what I am hearing from Jesus. That ought to be, the, that ought to be the, the testimony of every one of us in here, that we started to believe in Jesus because somebody else told us about Jesus. And, and we connected the dots for the very first time, and the Holy Spirit blew into our hearts, and we, and we accepted Christ. But I hope none of us are believing in Jesus today simply because a Sunday school teacher or a parent told us, told us to or, or, or brought us to Jesus 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I hope today that we are believing in Jesus because we have seen Jesus. We have experienced Jesus ourselves. From an application standpoint to close today, looking back through this story, I think there are some evangelism myths 
that too often we hold to and believe that this story basically completely debunks. And I want to give these to you, and then I want to give you one thing to do this week as a real point of application. Lots of application here. Every point's application today, right? But one specific thing that you can do this week, okay? Myth number one, presenting the gospel is supposed to look the same every time, right? Some of us come from this mindset that we are supposed to have an understanding of how to present the gospel, and that that's the the step or the process we're supposed to follow every time. This conversation doesn't look a whole lot like the conversation with Nicodemus. I mean, one, we're talking about wind and and rebirth. This other one, we're talking about water. There's not a lot of similarities, and yet the conversations are both saying the same thing. But it looks totally different based on who he's talking to. So Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a moral a moral individual who, who, who knows a lot about God, but has never really connected the faith piece. Next conversation, he's having a conversation with a woman who's completely wrecked by sin and is trying to find her satisfaction in men. And so the conversation looks way different. For us to be effective communicators of the gospel, it's not about me giving you some type of canned approach to our faith. Some of you have experienced that when people have come to your door and they've tried to pitch their religion to you, and they are simply walking through this step-by-step process that they've memorized. And you try to get them off that process, and they have no idea how to talk to you. It's just like, no, 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 no. Can I get back to number four of the things that I'm supposed to tell you? Because they have no idea really how to connect their faith to you. If we're going to be effective in sharing the gospel, it's not you having this step-by-step process that you follow. It's knowing the gospel and knowing people in a way that you want to be compassionate to them, that you're able to talk and listen and share and not have to follow this step-by-step process. Myth number two, I have to develop a relationship with this person in order to share the gospel with them. We, we, we say this all the time. Like we wholeheartedly believe that we are better at sharing the gospel and somebody will be way more likely to accept the gospel from us if we're friends with them first. So I'm going to try to build a friendship, build a relationship, and then I'll share the gospel with them. Jesus wakes up from a nap here and just, boom, goes into gospel mode with this lady. He doesn't build a relationship. Now, does he, does he make a connection? Does he start talking to her? Does he just go into evangelism mode? He doesn't go into his four-step process of evangelism mode. He definitely talks with her and connects with her. But he's not interested in trying to be friends with her so that, a month from now, he can start talking about spiritual things. He just immediately, he immediately goes to the gospel with her. It's a reminder to us, don't use the excuse that you need to be friends with somebody before you can share the gospel with them. Does that work sometimes? Yeah. Is it a necessity? No, it's not. Myth number three. We reach people best if we share a common interest with them. A lot of times we think that you got to be like somebody for them to really listen to the gospel from you, that that's a necessary piece to it. Jesus has nothing in common with this person, right? He's not from the same culture. He's not the same gender. And they certainly don't have anything in common with how they're living their life. And she's completely open to hearing it from him. We don't have to have common interests with people for the God. In fact, I would argue... I would argue that it's a better picture of the gospel 
when we are taking an active interest in people who aren't anything like us. I mean, the gospel's, the gospel's all about tearing down barriers, right? It's all about tearing down barriers. The New Testament's always saying, we don't have men, women, Jews, Greeks. Like, like that's not how we distinguish things in the church. We are all one in Christ. I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel when we are, when we are seeking to reach people who are nothing like us. The gospel makes sense if people who are very similar are doing the same things. But a, a, a gospel picture where people who have nothing alike coming together, that shows the barriers that the gospel tears down. And then lastly, number four, my past sins will keep those closest to me from really listening to me. Everyone knew who she was, and they still believed. Sometimes we think that, and this kind of goes back to that family dynamic, that I can't reach my family because my family knows me. I need somebody who, who my family doesn't know to come share the gospel with them. That's a myth, and it's a myth that's debunked in this story because she has a very sketchy past that this town would have known. And she walks right back in and says, I've been changed. I've met somebody who has changed me. And they believed. And they believed. All right, what do I want you to do this week? I want you to make plans to connect with somebody that's not like you this week. I want you to, I want you to step out and attempt to spend some time with somebody who is nothing like you and see what great benefits come from that. See what great benefits come from that. I told you that I've been learning a lot about uh, race and diversity and inclusion, and, 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 and God's just been pricking my heart about, about some of this stuff in my own life. Um, and we had the opportunity recently to, to put some emphasis on this at school, and so I wanted some people to come in and speak who were of different culture, different skin color, and I had to sadly admit that I didn't know anybody that I could really call upon to come and do that. I just didn't. I remember when I was four years old, I literally lived across the street from Trinity in this neighborhood, and my best friend was an African-American kid. And it was at a time in my life where you didn't really care about skin color, you didn't really care about culture. I mean, me and him just played in the creek all the time. And I remember crying when my mom said we were moving, because me and Nicholas were best friends. And I don't know that I've had a friend like him of a different culture, different skin color since then. I've just been ingrained in my whiteness for a long time. And here I am trying to see what the New Testament says about about every tribe, nation, and tongue and realizing I don't really know people and talk to people who aren't like me very often. And so, honestly, I called up a pastor who I trust greatly and I said, hey, I need to know if you've got anybody in your church that could come speak that's of a different skin color because I want our school to see this and I got to be honest with you, I don't know anybody that I can call upon. And so he connected with me with, with, a, with a guy. And me and this guy are becoming quick friends. And it's been such a blessing to me. And I think to him too, for the two of us to connect. And I was able to bring him to um, the fundraiser gala because Lauren couldn't attend. And so I, I called him up and I said, hey, dude, will you be my date to the gala? I said, I need somebody to sit with me and hang out with me. He's like, dude, I'd love to come and hang out with you. And I love the fact that I'm spending time and talking with somebody who, who's really nothing like me. Nothing like me. And it's been such a blessing for me to kind of step out of my little box 
and experience somebody who comes from a different culture, different background, different experiences, and to be learning from that individual. I want to challenge you to do something similar like that this week. I want you to try to find somebody who is nothing like you and just try to spend some time with them. Because Jesus was teaching that lesson to his disciples. He wanted them to think bigger. Hey, we've been reaching a lot of Jewish people with the gospel. Now let's go into Samaria and talk to somebody who we don't like. And let's let them know that Jesus loves them too. Let's try to do that as a church this week as well. Our um, family worship questions are, are in our kids' notes. And I don't think I put a slide there for us. No. Um, so our family worship questions this week. Talk about how you can do that as a family. How can you do that as a family? How can you spend some time interacting with some people who aren't like your family? How can you kind of step out of your box and begin to interact with people who are different? Let's expand our thinking as far as who needs the gospel. Not just people who are like us, but all people that are around us. Let's pray together. God, we love you. We thank you for this story. We thank you for this account, this narrative, this historical event where you directed and guided your son's path to this town, to this moment in time, to encounter a woman who was completely broken and in need of a drastic change in her life. And God, I'm thankful that Jesus sets a great example here that he could have easily justified not saying anything because of his tiredness. And this woman would have gone right back to her non-husband and continued down a life of unfulfillment. But God, I'm thankful that Jesus sets us a great example that sometimes there are people that we cross paths with that are desperately in need of a conversation with us. God, help us to be mindful this week as we, as we get back into our normal routine and we're working, and we're laboring, and we're doing all these busy things that are necessary things. God, help us not to lose sight of the fact that there are people around us that we are crossing paths with in our busyness that need you. God, help us to see people around us that aren't like us and be sensitive to the fact that they need you as well. God, help us to to not be paralyzed by these myths that we believe sometimes that, that we can't evangelize effectively unless this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Help us to see this story. Help us to see this account as a reminder to us that these things don't have to happen for us to be effective. That we just need to be conscious and aware that everybody we come in contact with needs Jesus. And everybody that we come in contact with is an opportunity for us to minister. So God, I pray that we would seize those opportunities this week. Different people that we come in contact with, Lord, help us to take advantage of those opportunities, not miss them because we're tired, not miss them because we're busy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.